This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Hey there, mindful listeners. Thank you so much for spending a part of your day with us. All right, this show, I got to tell you what it's about because I'm really excited. Uh, this is something that I have had personally in my life. It is something that I come across in my practice quite often. It's overeating and binge eating. And we're going to be talking with Dr. Glenn Livingston. He's a PhD about the psychology behind overeating and binge eating. Let me introduce you to Dr. Livingston. He is a veteran psychologist and was a long time, get this, CEO of a multi-million dollar consulting firm, which has serviced several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. But guess what? Delusion by what traditional psychology had to offer overweight and or food obsessed individuals which does cover quite a bit of us in the United States, Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program, which more than 40,000 participants have gone through. So most important, he has his own personal journey, which is where we get the best information, right? Mindful listeners, this is how we can open our minds with something that's so seductive when it comes to overeating, binge eating, food in and of itself in our United States. And he's helped people get out of the food prison uh, and he himself to a normal, healthy weight and a much more lightened heart with food. So Dr. Glenn Livingston, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I hope you're calling me Glenn because doctor will get old after a little while. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I always, people say, should I call you doctor? I'm like, only if you want to participate in paying back my student loans, Holly will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, That's funny. So what an interesting life you've lived. Um, I'm so, uh, you know, I, and I have to say it, it's true. Um, when I talk to guests and they've, their work has sprung out of these personal journeys and these personal stories, it's always so riveting to me um, because it's just where that authenticity and that that real yeah. true it's in your bone information comes from well it's also a little painful and embarrassing but i find that it's really important to share it because otherwise um people don't really understand why this strange method resonates and and um i, I feel like people are willing to give it more of a shot when i when i do that so i'd be yeah, happy to share. i mean I, I really would appreciate that, and I appreciate you being vulnerable to do that, because I do think that's where the sweet spot is. So, um, yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I suppose, long story short, I'm I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and when I was about 17, I figured out that if I worked out for two and a half or three hours a day, that I could eat anything in the world that I wanted to. Six, seven, eight thousand calories a day, multiple pizzas big boxes of muffins, boxes of chocolate bars, boxes of donuts, whatever my heart desired, I could eat. Mm. And I didn't think it was a problem. You know, I, I thought it was great. I, yeah. yes, I was spending a lot of time eating, a lot of time recovering from eating and a lot of time exercising. And I could have used it all that time for other stuff, but yeah. I was 17 and I was happy. So, right. um, you know, the real problem came in when I was 22, 23. And I was no longer a teenager. My metabolism started to slow down. But more importantly, I I was married and I was in graduate school and I had patients and I had a two-hour commute each way. And I just didn't have the time to work out for three hours a day, maybe, maybe three half hours a week. Yeah. But I found that these foods had a hold of me. Mm. And 
even though I wasn't working out, I was still eating six, seven, eight thousand calories a day. And worse yet, I was constantly obsessed with food. I, mm. I mean, I would be sitting with a suicidal patient. Mm. And, you know, anything about psychology, you know that it's really not just an intellectual game. It's, you have to be present. You have to lend mm-hmm. these people your soul. Otherwise, you just don't do any good. And I couldn't be 100% present. Thankfully, I never lost anybody. But I was thinking, when can I get to the delicatessen and dislodge my jaw to pour the contents of the tray into it? <laughs> and so that that really bothered me, Holly. I, I come from a family of psychologists. There, there are 17 of them, 17 therapists in my family. And wow, um, it just was always the most important thing to me. And I wasn't. I wasn't in integrity. I wasn't fully in integrity about it. And so I went the psychological route to try to solve it myself. I went to all the best doctors on Long Island in New York City. And coming from my family, we knew a lot of them. And I went to Ovaries Anonymous for years. I took medication. I went to a psychiatrist. And it was a very soulful journey. I don't regret taking it. It had a big impact on who I am today. But it didn't solve the problem. It would get a little better and then a lot worse, and a little better and a lot worse. And I ate myself up to probably about 280 pounds. The last weigh-in was about 257, but I stopped weighing myself after that, and hmm. I'm guessing it was about 280. My triglycerides were, uh, the last test was 826. I'm thinking it was probably over 1,000 before that. Yeah, okay. And And the doctors were telling me I was going to die in my 30s if I kept going like this. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to do that. So simultaneously, I guess you could characterize all that as trying to love myself thin or nurture my inner wounded child or sure. tell myself that if I could just heal the hole in my heart, then I could stop overeating. Well, there are three things that happened right around the same time that gave me a revelation and switched the paradigm on me. So mm-hmm. rather than trying to love myself thin, I realized that I was going to have to capture and cage this rabid animal inside me. It was more like I had to be the alpha wolf dealing with a challenger for leadership. And Hmm. when an alpha wolf is challenged for leadership, it doesn't say, oh my goodness, somebody needs a hug, right? It it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. It snarls and it growls. and And so here's what happened to put me, give me that realization. The first thing was that I'd been doing a lot of consulting for industry, and I figured that if they were paying me all this money to do these studies, that I could do my own. So mm-hmm. I funded my own study. Hmm? I said, yes, back I'm in the listening. Days. This is, yeah. So it was back in the days when internet clicks were cheap. And <laughs> over the course of about five years, I think it was, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. And in the survey, I asked them, what foods they struggled with, what couldn't they stop eating once they started. And I asked them about different areas of, of their life and how happy or stressed out they felt within them. And what I figured out was that people who struggled with chocolate, and my binges always started with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. People who struggled with crunchy, salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who struggled with soft, chewy things like bread and bagels and pizza, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought this was really fascinating, and I figured that, okay, now all I need to know is what food someone struggles with, and then I can get to work on solving those problems. But I'll give you a story 
to explain why that didn't work and why I don't think it works for most people. Um, I went to my mom first because she raised me. She's a therapist. And I said, Mom, you and I, we have chocolate problems. And I just did this study, and it makes sense that I could be feeling lonely and brokenhearted. My marriage is not going so great, and um, you know I'm kind of unhappy about that. But what is it in my upbringing that could have brought this on? Where did the pattern start? And she gets this horrible sound of her voice, and she goes, I'm so sorry, Mom. I am so sorry. But Mom, Mom, what is it? She says, I'm so sorry. She said, when you were a little baby, one year old, 1965, your, your father was a captain, and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam, and I was terrified because, you know, we were about to get pregnant with a second kid, and I, I thought, am I, am I going to be a widow with two small kids, and how am I going to support myself? And, and at the same time, my father, your grandfather, he just got out of prison, and I had mm-hmm. idolized that man my whole life. Right. And so her whole life was basically falling apart. And apparently she didn't have the wherewithal to hug me and love me and feed me appropriately. Wow. And so what, what she did when I would come running or crying to her, wanting to be fed or hugged or loved, she would have a little refrigerator on the floor with a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup in it. And she'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And I'd go running over to the bottle. I'd you know, crawl over. I'd open the refrigerator. I'd take out the bottle and I'd suck on the top, and I go into a chocolate sugar coma. And you know, Holly, if if this were a movie, then at that point, my mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry, and we'd say, I forgive you, you can forgive yourself, and I'd never have the problem again, right? Wow. But but it's not the movies, and it it actually made things worse. The reason, I I mean, I, I did, I certainly did forgive my mom. It was a good conversation to have. I forgave myself, so I was softer on myself after that, and that was helpful. But as soul-enriching as it was, it actually made the problem worse because there was this little voice in my head that said, Hey, Glenn, do you know what you're right? Our mama didn't love us enough, and she left a big, a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and fill that up, we're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee, yippee, yippee. <laughs> and I find very similar things if I talk to clients, you know, like people who are stressed at work, they would say, well, until I can find a better job or start my own business, I'm just going to have to keep on binging on pretzels and chips, that kind of thing. And what I recognized from that was that there is, um, there's a difference between being a detective and a fireman. And sometimes you want to put out the fire and sometimes you want to figure out who caused the fire. And knowing who caused the fire doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how to put it out. So being a fireman first and foremost was most important. And secondly, I realized that actually we didn't have to put out the fire entirely. If you have a fire in a fireplace at home, think of the emotions as the fire. Sure. The problem, the only problem with that is if there's a hole in the fireplace and the fire can get out and do damage, there's nothing wrong with having a raging fire in your house if it's well contained in a fireplace. And it turns out there's this uh, voice of justification that, you know, it says, hey, Glenn, chocolate grows on a cocoa bean and that comes from a plant and therefore it's a vegetable or you worked out hard enough and you can start again tomorrow. 
all those crazy things that we do to talk ourselves out of our best laid plans. I, I realized that it was that voice that I had to I had to address, not um, hmm. not the fire or the hole in my heart. Because if you think about it, it takes a long time to find the love of your life, right? It's just, um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm single now. I don't really have her, so but I don't I don't binge on chocolate anymore. Um, so so I learned that. I was also from my consulting experience recognizing more and more how many billions of dollars were going into engineering these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt and and that you know the, these these companies were engineering these things to hit our bliss points without giving us the nutrition we need to feel satisfied. And essentially, they were hijacking our survival needs. And if you look at the animal studies, if you put an electric, if you put an electrode in the animal's pleasure center, and you let it press a lever to self-stimulate, do you know that those animals will press that lever thousands of times per day to the exclusion of their survival needs? Like if a starving rat will um, ignore its food, or a mm. nursing mother rat will ignore her pups, just to press that to self-stimulate thousands of times a day. And and I don't think that. I'm not paranoid. I don't think there are electrodes in our brains. But on the other hand, can you make a good argument that we're being given these pleasure buttons when you walk out of McDonald's and there's a Burger King across the street? Or, you know, just on, on every corner, there are all these bags and boxes and containers that you can buy that have these concentrated forms of pleasure that didn't exist on the savannas. We did not have potato chips on the savannas. We didn't have chocolate bars on the savanna or in the tropics when we were evolving. So we're not evolutionarily prepared for it. And so rather than looking to our history or our ancestry or you know, our upbringing to kind of blame our parents or, or blame our history or blame our emotional problems for this, I think that we should be standing up and being angry at what's going on in industry. And, yeah. and big advertising that sends five to 7,000 messages a year about food to us with maybe a half a dozen of them being about eating more whole fruits and vegetables um, and the addiction treatment industry that says you can't quit even if you want to, the best you can do is abstain one day at a time, even though the evidence right. says otherwise it's, 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 um, it's a perfect storm out there. And so I guess this is all towards the idea that I, I flipped my paradigm and I realized that I was dealing with aggressive profiteers in a society gone mad where people all tacitly agreed to slowly kill themselves with food so they can deal with the stresses of everyday life. Mm. And and that I was going to require a much more aggressive defense. Here's what I did, and it's very embarrassing, and I never thought I was going to publish it. I thought this was just going to be a private journal, but it worked for me. I decided that my inner lizard brain was going to be my inner pig. I was just going to call it my inner pig. I wish I chose another name for it. I don't mean to call anybody a pig. You can call it your food demon, whatever, but that's what I called it. That's why I wrote the book, and um, that's how people know it. Then I decided that any food, I would draw a very clear line in the sand. For example, I will never eat chocolate on a weekday again. And then I decided any voice inside me that suggested that I was going to have chocolate on a Wednesday was my inner pig squealing for pig slop. And what I said to myself was, I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as primitive as that sounds, as crude as it is, 
it would give me these extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to remember that I wasn't powerless, I could make a better decision if I wanted to, to remember why I wanted to make that decision, to remember the kind of person I decided I wanted to be around food. And slowly but surely, I recovered. And I, you know, I lost the weight. I hover in the 200 to 210 range now. I lost the triglycerides. I, I mean, all kinds of wonderful health things happened to me. And um, I kept a journal for eight years about me versus my inner pig and the crazy things that would say. And I published it on a whim at the request of a, I was a partner in a minor partner in a publishing company. And about three and a half years ago, they were looking for something to do a marketing experiment with. And the CEO asked if I could write a book. I said, well, I've got this dumb journal. <laughs> um, <laughs> 600,000 copies later now. And um, I don't need pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And I run around teaching people how to do that. So, I mean, obviously, Glenn, you are uniquely qualified to uh, to uh, comment on the the prevalence of overeating, stress eating, binge eating that is so prevalent in our culture. Um, and just to be clear, listeners, Glenn's book is Never Binge Again. That is also your website, neverbingeagain.com. Um, so obviously, you've answered a lot of the questions that I've had. It's such a great story. I once again appreciate you being so vulnerable and um uh, and talking about this and, you know, your story, I mean, cause I'm sure myself listeners, you know, we go about it in trying to heal in so many different ways. And I think that your approach with talking to your mom and understanding perhaps where some of this started the etiology of it, you know, early on, but what you did to actually heal and never binge again is, is quite profound. Um, you know, I guess, do you think that ending overeating is complicated for folks? I don't think that it's complicated. I think there's a really clear path to do it. It feels like you're climbing a path up a mountain. So I think that the way to end overeating is to assess the trigger foods and trigger behaviors in your life, and starting with the uh, single most difficult one. Like I would ask people if they want to do something really practical to make a difference today, what's the single most difficult trigger behavior or food in your life? And what role do you want that behavior or food to play? So for example, um, maybe you're doing most of the damage in the car. Maybe you can just say, I'll never eat in the car again. And we'll talk about the word never again later, the phrase never again, because people are frightened of that and you don't have to be. Um, or maybe you're getting into trouble with chocolate like I was, and you'll say, I'll never eat chocolate on a weekday again, or I'll only ever have chocolate on the last weekend of the calendar month. Very, very clear rule. The reason for having it be so clear as opposed to a guideline is so that you've made your food decisions ahead of time. Um, you know, in, in our culture, we're told to use guidelines as opposed to rules. We're, we're told that just eat well 90% of the time and indulge 10% of the time. But if I said I'm going to avoid chocolate 90% of the time and have it 10% of the time, the problem with that is every time in front of, I'm in front of a chocolate bar, I have to make another decision. Mm. And decisions wear down your willpower. That's what the research says. Decisions wear down your willpower. So if I say I'm only going to have chocolate on the last Saturday and Sunday of the calendar month, what I'm really doing is building a little character. I'm saying... I've become the kind of person who only has chocolate one weekend a month. 
and the rest of the month, all my chocolate decisions are made. So it's that kind of thing to, to make a really clear rule that, you know, people could follow you around all day and they'd know whether you followed it or not. So that you can then distinguish your healthy versus your unhealthy eating thoughts. So any thought whatsoever that suggests you're going to have chocolate on anything besides the last calendar weekend of the month would be your inner food demon or your inner food monster or your inner pig or whatever you want to call it. And then you can do two things. First of all, it's enough to recognize that your pig is squealing because you know by definition that your pig is always up to no good. It wants you to break the rule. So there's no reason to have to engage with it. You can just ignore it. But secondly, it can be helpful if people get confused by the squeals to look for the logical fallacies within it. So, for example, maybe my pig would say, a little check chocolate isn't going to hurt you today. You worked out hard enough. You can just start tomorrow. Well, the lie in that, the logical fallacy in that is that our neurological system is set up so that if you have the chocolate today, the craving is going to be stronger tomorrow and the association between the craving and the action will be stronger tomorrow. So you're never really standing still. You're either always digging a deeper groove or um, extinguishing a behavior. And if you're in a hole, the thing to do is to stop digging. So what I did there is I disputed the pig squeal. I made it really clear that the pig was lying to me. And the next time that I hear that squeal, it won't hold the same sway over me. I'll wake up a lot quicker. So that that's the that's the path up the mountain. And it appears to be much harder than it is, but it's not it does require a little work and um and so sometimes people avoid that. They don't want to do the thinking work to figure out what the rule should be and then they don't want to deal with the pig squealing saying they're going to be so depressed. But the truth yeah, is Go on. Go ahead, please. No, no, please. Well, I, I've learned this from Janine Roth there. There's really, there's no such thing as not being deprived. You're always choosing between two types of deprivation. There's a type of deprivation that I'll feel if I never have chocolate again, for example. I'll miss the mouthfeel and the taste. I'll miss the way that it feels in my system. I'll miss the you know added adrenaline and concentration and all the things that result from the, um, from the theobramine and caffeine and all the things that are in the chocolate. And by the way, I, I don't tell anybody what to eat. And I, a lot of people do really well having chocolate once in a while. I, I don't happen to be one of them. Um, so, yes, I will miss that and I'll feel deprived. And if I'm with a bunch of friends at Starbucks who are having a chocolate bar, then I'll feel a little bit, little bit like a weirdo and I feel deprived of some of the fun of that. On the other hand, if I don't have chocolate, then I can look forward to life at a normal weight. I can be free of cardiovascular worries, relatively free of them. I can be confident that I should live a long and healthy life. I can be confident that I'm a healthy leader. I can have more restful sleep. I can have more presence of mind and ability to relate to my friends and family and loved ones without the influence of chemicals in my life. And, and if I choose to have the chocolate, I'm depriving myself of all of that. So it's, not hmm. a question of, right? It's not whether you're going to be deprived. It's which thing you're going to be deprived of. Yeah. The last thing, pe- the last reason people don't do this is because they're afraid of the word never. Like if I say I will never have chocolate again, what if I make a mistake? 
what if I forget? Or what if there's some phenomenal new study that comes out that says that chocolate cures cancer? Then, then I'm going to be screwed, right? And the answer is that you're really not. The reason we say never again is because we want to present your food rule to your food monster as if, as if it were set in stone, because it acts like a two-year-old around these things. And there are certain things two-year-olds shouldn't even think about. When my niece Sarah was two, and I wanted to cross the street with her, I said, little Sarah, you can't ever, 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 ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 never. And she said, okay, Uncle Glenn. And, and then she didn't have the image of crossing the street in mind without me. Now, I told her that. I lied to her, basically, because I know that when she's seven or eight years old, I'll teach her to look both ways. Her, her mother did. So am I, am I saying something crazy? Am I lying to her? Am I being unethical by doing that? I don't think so, because this allowed her to concentrate all of her energy on the goal. And when you look at the psychology of winners, you look at um, like Olympic athletes or people who are climbing mountains, or uh, they, they focus all their energy on the goal. An Olympic archer, before they let go of the arrow, they actually see the arrow going into the bullseye. And, that, and they're not thinking, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. I'll just try the best I can. They're thinking, this is a foregone conclusion. That arrow is going into the bullseye. I'm committing with perfection. If they miss the bullseye, they don't say, oh, I'm pathetic. I might as well shoot all the arrows up in the air into the audience. They take it seriously. They figure out what went wrong. They analyze what they need to adjust. And then they get up at the aim in the bullseye again. That's what we need to do. Commit with perfection, but forgive ourselves with dignity. What happens with food is that people get, they either get overly involved in avoiding any guilt or shame, and we, we need that little bit of pain. It's like touching a hot stove. If you don't feel a little bit of pain when you touch a hot stove, then you're not going to know where the hot stove is, and you're not going to have any protection from avoiding it next time. But on the other hand, after you touch the hot stove, you don't want to throw your hand down on the stove and say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. I might as well just put the whole thing down and let it burn. (laughs) (laughs) Right? But I mean, that's what people do with food. They make a mistake. They go, oh my God, I'm pathetic. I I can't resist these chips or pasta or whatever it is. And I'm pathetic. And I'll just always be fat. Right. And what you get from there is that crazy shame cycle that just reinforces the behavior because, you know, you just, how, how do you get out of shame, which is an awful emotion to feel is you do the activity that, numbs it, which is usually overeat. And so there is that cycle there as well. Right. And the the piercing insight that I got about that was that the excessive shame and guilt, the perseveration on shame and guilt, when it gets stuck in your head like that, it's actually your pig trying to convince you that you're too weak to resist the next binge. So the shame and guilt is, is binge motivated in and of itself. And if you Learn to forgive yourself if you refuse to yell at yourself after a binge, if you decide that you're going to collect evidence of success. Maybe I had five cupcakes instead of 15. You know, yes, I ate a whole pizza, but I didn't eat the box. Um, if, if you collect evidence of success and you refuse to yell at yourself, you're going to find that it's harder to let those binges go out of control and out of control and out of control. It's hard to keep binging if you're not yelling at yourself. Yeah. Well, listen, I got to wrap it up here. I could talk to you forever or listen to you forever. Um, so a couple things. I mean, I think that this is right up the alley of mindful medicine because I think it does. It opens up people's minds. But in a sense, I think to your encouragement, um, 
people need to use their minds because I think knowledge is power, right? And there's a lot of education and uh, knowledge and books out there, but I think self-knowledge is totally superpower. And this does this approach does require a little bit of investigation inside, a little bit of pondering, um, which I appreciate because I think as well, you know, I, I, you I'm sure would agree the results are there. So how can people learn more? Well, I'll give you a copy of the book for free. Anybody who wants it at neverbingeagain.com. You can get it in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format for free. Neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. More importantly, when you do that, I'm going to give you two other things. There's a set of food plan starter templates where we wrote a set of rules that might work for any particular dietary philosophy. So whether you're keto or macrobiotic or vegan or point counting or calorie counting or high carb or low carb, whatever you are, there's a set of starter rules that you can adapt to your own, to your own needs. And a lot of people struggle with getting started with a plan, and so we did that. The other thing which I think is more important is that I know this sounds weird in theory. Like, so why does Dr. Holly have this psychologist on who's got a pig inside him? And um, <laughs> you must be thinking this is a little, a little crazy. It's not. It's a very compassionate, life-giving approach. And I recorded uh, a whole bunch of sessions that I'll also give you for free so you can listen to people going through the process and hear how it re restores their confidence and enthusiasm and it takes them from a sense of despair and powerlessness to a sense of hope and power. So it's all at neverbingeagain.com. Click the big red button. You can contact me at that site also. All right. There you have it, folks. Neverbingeagain.com. A very compassionate approach to stopping this insanity of binge eating and stress eating in our culture. And, you know, as, as you say, Glenn, um, never really without depriva- deprivation, it's what you choose to deprive yourself from and the outcome, uh, what you are a living proof of, of having to not worry about cardiovascular disease um, per se and having this feeling of accomplishment uh, based on all of the work that you've done, all the personal work you've done uh, versus depriving yourself of some chocolate. I think um, it's an interesting way to think about it. And thank you so much. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Thank you. You bet. All right, mindful listeners, we're going to see you next time. Thank you.